0: This episode is brought to you by Microsoft Azure. Welcome to Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor. Today, we're gonna start off with a story about cowboys. Bit of a departure from our normal show, but bear with us. Thing is, they play a critical part of how some of the biggest banks in the world operate every single day. Before we venture out into the Wild West, we need to start with COBOL. The common business-oriented language was developed nearly 60 years ago and has been gradually replaced by newer, more versatile languages in other industries, such as Java, C, and Python. There are very few places that still teach COBOL, and whilst it's a scarce commodity these days, all around the world, whether it's in the financial sector, major corporations, or parts of government, they still largely rely on it because it underpins powerful systems that were built in the 70s or 80s and never fully replaced. So COBOL has been around for a while. You would think quite a few people would know how to use it, right? The sticking point is COBOL has very little value in the rest of the tech industry and the world at large. It's not attractive for people to learn and there aren't many jobs available, which led to the creation of the COBOL Cowboys. This is a group of 60 to 80 year old men and women who've come together to support the technology that's stuck in the past. Their job is to maintain these decade old systems and prevent them from failing. So the question is, how did we get to a place where we need to pull people out of retirement to maintain banking's technical backbone?
1: I kind of think that you know these legacy systems are they're a function of history. right They're sort of if you look at how banks and other financial institutions have been put together, they're sort of an amalgam of 50 years of, of business integration, companies buying businesses. You know Each of those companies they would have bought would have had their own technical systems. And actually, the reality is that I think most banks and most financial institutions technology is not a core part of it it hasn't historically been a core part of it, so there was just enough work done to get these systems in place upfront and functional and then they they basically left it.
0: This is Ewan silver CTO of eleven fs
1: A few years went on, more more business processes went in place, more more people were bought, and they layer these things up it 's like sort of technological archaeology it's you know at the very bottom you 've got this fossilized cambrian layer level of of legacy systems, and they're now trying at the very top to, to build out modern next generation real-time event-driven systems. That's fine for where we are now, but you know, that was not the way that systems were built 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, they were batch-orientated, large-scale, they're relatively slow, and trying to then to build a, a capability on top of that just isn't going to work. There is this fossilized layer of old legacy systems inside most of these institutions. You know, we have to rely on them simply because that's what's in place. Right? You, you literally cannot change them. I think the problem we then have is that a lot of business processes get put in place around the, the quirks and the idiosyncrasies of these systems. These business processes then become almost hardwired into the way the company works and trying to find other systems to fit in around those quirks are hard. People do not like to replace business processes, that's a hard, it's a hard cultural change. And often a lot, of these, a lot of these technology problems are not actually technology problems. They're business and management problems. They're, they're changing the way we work, changing the, uh, the environment that people work in. They're changing the business metrics. And, and that's actually ironically a lot harder
0: to change than, than the underlying technology. As we dive deeper into why we're holding on to legacy systems, it's ironically not the technology itself that's holding us back. It's people, it's culture, and it's fundamentally changing the way you think about infrastructure inside and out to be able to adapt it to newer systems. It's not quite as easy as it seems though. You can't just take out your old COBOL system and throw it on the cloud. Part of the problem with the cloud is that I think
2: a
1: lot of old school enterprise architects, old school enterprise systems, they're they're used to systems that don't fail. And I put that in quotation marks. They believe that if they have systems that stay up the whole time and, and never fall over, then you won't have any problems. You look at the way the cloud works that's not the case. They, you're built on systems that are ephemeral. These systems are designed to be transient and, and come up and come down very quickly. So as a result, you know you see failure, and I put that in quotation marks quite often in the system. A modern cloud-based architecture is basically you almost expect it to be in a, in a state of a partial failure on, a, on an ongoing basis. So you have to build that that capability, and you have to build in failure as a first order primitive to then be able to for the system to be able to handle that failure and to be able to and to be able to move forward. Old-style legacy banking systems expect everything to be working 100%. It's either on or it's off. You know, cloud-based systems are, they're a range, zero to 100. Clearly, if it's zero, it isn't working. It's never going to be 100. But, you know, most web-based systems are working around 98%, something like that. You know, you think about it, because that's why, you know, things like a partial upgrade, when when you're rolling out new features all the time, part of the system is off. But actually, the system needs to be able to handle it. So that's how you can have hot deployments all the time. Banks, you know, don't do that. It's like, well, no, we have to shut the system off for for three hours on a Sunday morning or whatever to, to, to make sure the system works because it can't handle that partial degradation. So it tells you it's not used to being able to handle failure. And, and web, web is uh, the cloud sorry, is all about handling partial failure.
0: Legacy isn't necessarily the problem. It's how we work with legacy, how we curb that behavior, and how we think about the services that we're going to need in the future.
1: I think banks need to, I'd say, they, they need to start having these breakage lines in their architecture. A good example of, of most banks is that they have multiple core payment rails, so on and so forth, which are basically hooked into individual banks. This is really a, a legacy of you know their KYC and ID processes are basically on their onboarding processes, and you can't access their payment rails unless, you, unless you're unless you a probably, properly governed entity. I think if you see things like ClearBank coming along, who are building an underlying just generic API infrastructure to to allow you to move payment rails around a lot of banks could start doing this if they wanted to and actually thought in that way the ability to put in core generic services that can be used by multiple people and start building stuff across business lines but a lot of projects are financed just by a particular product silo and so actually the ability to do something that transcends the entire bank is, is almost unheard of.
0: So if these systems are going to stay where they are but the banks need to move forward how are we going to work around this? What kind of support does a bank need to move forward? The current state of the banking battlefield is that you have banks who are tied up in their legacy systems, but are trying to push forward with new intelligent digital services without having the technical backbone to support it. So what are your options? How do you extend legacy systems that don't have APIs and that frankly, are a bit of a black box? If you're not in a position to replace your current infrastructure, how do you improve? We need to think less about replacing things, but rather turn our eyes on how we can extend a legacy system and slowly level up each part. Microsoft are building that bridge for banks, building products that act like the cloud, but can live alongside your legacy systems. We caught up with Scott Seeley, Principal Solutions Architect at Microsoft, and he ran us through how you can begin to untangle your legacy system to work with the newer services we have available to us.
2: Is you literally have to create some sort of an API that allows you to talk to the back end system. There's a few different ways that companies do this. One of them, which is probably the lowest bar, is they do some regular job that exports a bunch of data to a flat file that, that then gets consumed by some other system to make the data available. So it's, you know, if you want access to read-only data. The second path that you'll see folks do is when they want to be able to interact with the other system. You know, send in a request, get back a response. Um, so for example, in banking, it might be something like, how much money does Scott Seeley have in his bank account? Comes back $500. With with that kind of interactivity, what you'll be looking for is adding in typically web APIs. One of the nice things about the internet being today so old, it's you know like getting close to being into its 30s. Pretty much every platform out there, including the legacy ones, all have mechanisms to communicate over TCP IP networks using HTTP and HTTPS for their... Messaging, and I can also then take my requests then and receive some data, churn on it, send back a valid HP request using XML or JSON. So the path that a lot of folks look at when they're trying to extend these systems is you pick out what do you need to expose to other systems? The second thing is what bits of the web stack are now available on my platform? And then you integrate those two things.
0: APIs tend to be the sticking point for any major open banking project. So even if it's possible to extend out our legacy systems to them, then what's the holdup? Just like Ewan brought up, it's a people problem.
2: Depends on the development team that you have working on this to get things going. If they're new to adding their APIs, so building my first API, there's going to be a learning curve where you're going to be spending quite a few cycles just understanding what you're doing. Once you understand how to do this, My experience has been that adding a new API to access existing functionality typically focuses an awful lot on designing what the contract will look like in between the receiver of the data and and the consumer of the data. So describing what the packets are gonna look like, what the messages will look like, that will consume a bunch of time. Now for each message, you'll find that it may take a day or two to get that all straightened out. Then the coding time itself depends on the framework, but even for something like COBOL, you're largely taking a bunch of your various, you know, your pick statements and whatnot to define what your your data structures look like and then mapping it into essentially JSON, which could be a string format. That really is pretty short as far as development time. You focus on an awful lot more on just integration testing, making sure that things work okay. And then as you evolve the APIs, A lot of this can be handled with testing, just making sure you don't break the contracts that you set in place early on. Microsoft have a
0: rather unique solution that's a bit different to some of the other tech providers out there. Instead of having the finance industry conform to a brand new system, using their hybrid services, they can work with legacy and enable a layer of intelligent digital services on top.
2: Integrate this with a hybrid system, which it is by definition, whether or not you're talking about on-prem and in the cloud, or you're talking just about using my legacy COBOL system, with my modern up-to-date Linux or Windows environment, the requirement for integration is simply that, do I have network connectivity in between the thing serving the API and the thing requesting the API? As long as those two things can communicate over the same network, you're good to go. So you can choose to go cowboyish and put this thing on the internet. Then you're gonna have a lot of issues, especially if you're you know, in finance, you don't expose financial data over the public Internet just blindly because you want to make sure everybody's authenticated properly. So you have a lot more tax on you if you don't if you can't trust everybody in the network, even on your own network, you still want to be able to watch out for it because the difficulty is always in just securing your endpoints. That's the hard part here, making everything the folks who want to integrate with you and the integration point so long as they're in the same network, that's easy because, like I said, we're using HTTP and HTTPS. Those are the things that let the internet work. The hard part is making sure that you have all the controls around making around who can access those endpoints. So it's the security piece that's going to be the, the hard part in integration.
0: The question is then, where should banks be starting?
2: Um, modernization of your banking infrastructure or just modernization of your infrastructure in general. One of the things that you'll want to look at doing is what can I do to program against a more modern environment? Today, that more modern environment is something, a combination of Container technology, so think Docker, Kubernetes, that kind of thing. Um, you want to be able to program to that type of environment. while That allows your developers to make use of the latest tools that are available, newest programming techniques, more modern libraries, and kind of be where the thought leadership is at today.
0: Just to explain containers at a very high level, Most historical banking technology stacks are monolithic. In other words, the payments engine is hardwired to the account system, which is hardwired to the fraud system, and so on. To make any change, you have to have an outage, where the whole system is taken down over a weekend, whilst the complexity of all of that system is managed. Modern software architecture gets around this in a number of ways, but one of the primary ways is with microservices. So here's a metaphor. Imagine taking a picture and turning that into a jigsaw puzzle. I can take out one bit of the jigsaw puzzle and the picture is still clear. I could even have spare versions of that jigsaw piece that are ready to go back into the puzzle when that one piece is taken out. The jigsaw piece here is the container. The problem this introduces is that these programs need to be coordinated. They crash and need to be managed. They need to be found by other containers. They need to store their files somewhere and they need to be configured. Sometimes you need a lot of programs, sometimes you just need a few. Depending on how many people are using them, sometimes the computers themselves crash and the programs go with it. All of these problems put together are really hard for people to manage by themselves, which is where a program called Kubernetes helps. It helps organize all of the containers across all of the computers. Kubernetes tries to figure out the best computer for each container and to handle it when a program crashes. It offers a really easy way for these programs to find each other and talk to each other. And for you to say, this one program should be used by other people, like for instance, a website. Okay, back to Scott.
2: And then the other thing you wanna look at is moving to the cloud for a lot of companies, they have to do their due diligence to make sure that they're not putting stuff in a bad environment, that they're not gonna be attacked in weird ways. So they may wanna start out by doing this development in a place where they can control much more of the access. For that kind of stuff, what you might want to do then is do your new development on something that allows you to emulate the cloud, but keep things in-house. Um, so if you're looking at the Microsoft area, looking at Azure, Azure Stack is a great way to do this because there you get all the different bits that you would want to be able to program in the cloud. You've got containers, you've got virtual machine hosting, you can take things, you know, create what they call offers on Azure Stack, which is basically a pre-programmed or pre-built environment that can be deployed for a given user. So that's a thing you can do, and that allows you to start using modern technologies while you figure out what else you're going to be doing. Uh, allows you to do your hybrid environment where you can uh, integrate with your legacy system still on-prem, and it gives you the ability to take those same things. Once you understand how to deploy it into Azure, it's going to give you the ability to jump into the cloud without having to rewrite a lot of your code. Because today you took this thing, um, Microsoft calls it an ARM template, and you can take that same template and deploy it to your Azure Stack environment or to your Microsoft Azure cloud environment. The same template works in both places. Buying the equipment, setting it up. Once you have it set up, then deploying to Azure Stack and integrating with it is no different than integrating with other bits on your network again. From your point of view, it's the Azure Stack provides the infrastructure that you need in order to deploy your applications the way you would in Azure. The other thing it gives you is you're already on your own network, which means that those HTTP calls that you set up when you were trying to connect to your old environment, they still work because they're in the same network. So development, deployment on Azure Stack winds up being pretty easy. The other nice thing about it is that you can take developers that know Azure Cloud and have them come in and be productive in Azure Stack from day one. So, there's a bunch of advantages to going this route.
0: So there's a lot of talk in the industry about how legacy systems slowed down the rate of progress, but it seems with a bit of culture change and tools like Microsoft offers could eventually bring everything up to date, which leads to the big questions. Why aren't we doing more with our infrastructure? Why aren't our services smarter? The next step on having modern systems are to build modern services. The elephant in the room here is AI. More specifically, leveraging machine learning and banking. If you have this brilliant, hybrid, modern, stable infrastructure, why aren't we putting it to work to build more intelligent systems for our users? The industry has an AI problem. It's become a magical word dropped in meetings without much understanding or application within the industry. So we jumped on our call with our friendly neighbourhood physicist and fintech insider regular Charlie Wood to get to the bottom of where the industry is going wrong with AI. People's
3: expectations of what it can do at the world at large vary wildly from it can't, even, uh, it can't even microwave my food properly to it's definitely going to take over the world and kill everybody to it's definitely taking my job and I'm going to live on the streets because a robot is going to be sitting in my chair. In the, re- in the reality, I don't think it's anywhere near any of those things. I, I would find it remarkable if AI gets anywhere near the kind of apocalyptic vision that a lot of people have um, in anything like a reasonable time frame. It's pretty good at playing some computer games right now, or even some physical games like Go, et cetera, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to kill us all. I don't expect Terminator to come anytime soon. In financial services industry, it gets, much like any industry, there's a popularity around certain technologies. It's technology for the sake of technology. It's a case of, that's a really sexy name. I want to be using that somewhere. It's exactly where blockchain was possibly a year or two ago. And obviously that's still going. And machine learning was probably a year ago. And we could wind back even further and pick other technology patterns. SOA was a really popular architecture, for example. And anything that could use that terminology, try to use that. Terminology, even if it wasn't necessarily appropriate. So sometimes I find it very, very hard to try and pull apart, okay, what is AI actually useful for in this conversation? And where is
0: it just being used as a buzzword to garner interest for in people? So, Charlie, how can someone determine if it's AI or not?
3: Well, no, number one, if, uh, if you can understand every step of how you get from an input to an output, then chances are it's probably not in the realm of AI. Usually what you're doing is almost a kind of cryptographic pattern of confusion and diffusion with uh, with AI. Like neural networks, for example, you've got loads and loads of statistical regression algorithms who are all working independently and passing their inputs to their outputs, and then the other ones are consuming the outputs and passing it to their outputs, etc. Um, and when you tree all those together, it basically becomes a bit chaotic to understand a small change in the input creates what on the output. The fact that that means that you don't necessarily know exactly how the whole process works is what is kind of indicative of AI. If you do understand the process that everything works by, it's probably just a complex rules engine, um, a kind of massive if-then-if-this-and-that type machine. So for me, that's kind of a big telltale sign. If, If the problem can be solved with a large list of rules and isn't inherently statistical, then I'm dubious that AI is either the right solution or even actually being used. And it's purest sense but they were really popular for doing high frequency trading and recognizing the patterns and then people assumed that that meant that with machine learning and AI you can predict the future but that's absolutely not true there is nothing that can predict the future all you can really do is understand the past well enough to recognize patterns from the past again when they start to crop up which might be indicative of what's happening in the future but if your future is actually unrelated to your past there is nothing that anything can tell you about that
0: Next week on Fintech Insider, we'll be bringing you the show you've been asking us for. We're taking on AI. This episode was written by Ollie Judge, produced by Petrit Barisha, Laura Watkins, edited by Holly Blacksill, and hosted by me, Simon Taylor. This episode was brought to you by Microsoft Azure. If you'd like to find out more about how they could help you leverage your existing systems for much more, head on over to microsoft.11fs.com. Thank you to Charlie Wood from Capco, Scott Sealy, Paul Marr, and Howard Bush from Microsoft. And making his debut, Ewan Silver, the CTO of 11FS. 11FS transformed businesses, and frankly, we get shit done. To find out what we can do for you, email hello at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening, and if we hooked you with this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast client. And if you loved it, why not write a review? We love reading those reviews. Goodbye.